Welcome to a special edition of Southbank Centre's book podcast. I'm here in the Royal Festival Hall Cafe, surrounded by literature lovers and festival goers. For the past 12 years, Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival has brought together today's leading writers, thinkers and cultural observers to explore the burning issues of our times. In previous years, we've been on a voyage through the entirety of Moby Dick. We've heard Hillary Clinton's strong views on alternative facts, the voice of Margaret Atwood's handbag, and we've heard poetry from Claudia Rankin, Anne Carson and a host of poets for Poetry International. And we've seen the dreams of refugees projected onto the wall of the Royal Festival Hall, to name just a few. This year we'll have everything from a celebration of Homer's Odyssey to an examination of contemporary America in the lead-up to the midterm elections. And we'll be bringing you an election special next month, so keep an eye or an ear out for that one. Good evening and welcome to the Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall. My name is Debo Amon, Literature Programmer here at Southbank Centre. We're delighted to be presenting tonight's event as part of Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival. Tonight, we are honoured to bring you Akala and David Olasuga, Striking the Empire. In this event, we delve into a timely discussion exploring everything from empire and race to culture and class, dissecting the making and unmaking of civilizations and cultures, and retracing and contextualizing the roots of modern British society. We are joined by Mobile Award-winning hip-hop artist, writer, poet, and educator, Akala. Both label owner and social entrepreneur, Akala fuses his unique sound with fierce lyrical storytelling. As well as gaining a reputation as one of the most dynamic talents in the UK, Akala has also become known for his compelling lectures and journalism, and particularly his memoir, Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire, which was a Sunday Times bestseller. David Olasuga is a British-Nigerian historian, broadcaster, and filmmaker. He was one of three presenters on BBC's landmark art series, Civilizations, and has presented many other groundbreaking programs. His books include Black and British, A Forgotten History, The World's War, The Kaiser's Holocaust, Germany's Forgotten Genocide, and his most recent publication, Civilizations, Encounters, and the Cult of Progress. Our chair for this evening is writer and broadcaster and co-founder of Women, Inspiration, and Enterprise Network, June Sarpong. Please give, join me in giving a warm welcome to Akala, David, and June. I feel like a rock star right now. <laughs> wow, how amazing is this? I mean, this is fantastic. I have to say, when I was asked to moderate this session, my immediate answer was, yes, and is it today? I mean, it's just wonderful to join you both. And I was thinking, what do we call this? You know, if this was women, obviously we'd say black girl magic. What's the equivalent for that for men? Black man magic? Hashtag? That sounds so, wrong, sir. That yeah, sounds wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's anyway. So we're going to move on. Um, I think we have lots to get through in our conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I'm going to open it up for questions. Uh, so you'll, both, uh, you'll all be able to ask both of these fantastic men uh, questions and really get into the meat of all that you want to know. So you've both had 
really interesting journeys. So in Barack Obama's Audacity of Hope, he talks about his improbable journey. And I think it's fair to say that both of you have had improbable journeys. So what I want to do is to start at the beginning. Um, I'll start with you first, David, uh, as it were. And it's not age before beauty, I assure you. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Goodness. <laughs> I can't tell a joke now and again. Um, lucky David's so handsome. <laughs> yeah, lucky so handsome. <laughs> so I'll start with you first, David. So how does uh, a young mixed-race boy from Newcastle, dyslexic, grows up on a council estate, go on to become one of our leading historians. What is that journey? It's, it's ignorance. Um, wow. My mother didn't, tell, didn't allow us to know how improbable and how stupid our ambitions were. Mm. And so all of my siblings have gone on to do things that they wanted to do um, because of, we were educated in everything other than the insanity of yes. believing that we could do these things. So I went to university thinking, well, I could become an historian. Yeah. Um, the hard thing was keeping believing I could when it was evident year after year, encounter after encounter, rejection after rejection, that actually I wasn't supposed to be. Mm. I wasn't supposed to be doing these things. I wasn't supposed to be in these places. But initially, and the, I mean, the core experience was growing up, and that was um, there was never a reason why you wouldn't be able to do this. It was ever presented to me. It was always the case I was going to go to university. It was never a doubt. It was never in question. It was always presented that I could do whatever I wanted and that I was as clever as the people around me. So I never really doubted it, because my mother told that story with yeah. the really important omission yes. of all the stuff I was going to face. She told it so well. So you just believed it from the outset? Yeah, and yeah. The, thing, the things you learn when you're very young are more real than almost anything else. Mm. Uh, and I just didn't know that, and I learned the hard way, that you weren't supposed to be doing this. But as your journey shows us, ignorance is bliss, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Akala? Um, Sort of, it's funny because we've discussed this quite a lot, how similar our upbringings were, even though, you know, completely different cities, mm. slightly different time frame. Um, <laughs> Don't yeah. go there. Don't go no, not there. much. I wasn't, listen, that wasn't, Ten years. that wasn't a side, exactly, that wasn't a sideways. It was literally, the point I was trying to make before you got started laughing was actually a, a sad one in the sense that the, the issues didn't change. We were mm. both put in a special needs group oh, wow. um, at school. Um, was your one for kids who didn't speak English as well? Yeah. Right, right, so my one was for kids who didn't speak English, as, as was David's. Oh and and so when we, when we bonded on that, you know, t 10 years apart, completely different cities, cl clearly neither of us have any problems speaking English. Um, but there's something else we have in common. Um, and so for me, it was, it was similar to David in that my, my mother, again, even though she, she at this point, so when I was young, she hadn't gone to university mm. yet. In fact, when her, her teachers first told her she could go to university, she, she said, no, sir, that's for posh people. Wow. You know, because she was conditioned by, I suppose, the gender by relations society. of her day and, you yeah. know, not from a wealthy family. Mm. Ironically, for my mum, as, as I point out in the group, part of my mum's ambition to strive and do more and to be more educated um, and to push her children to go to university was a re result of a relationship between British Caribbeans. Okay. And I know for a lot, a lot of people that, that might seem difficult to believe because we, we've had such a successful sort of Caribbeans anti-education for so many generations. But when my mum was essentially, you know, d disowned by her dad, she was sort of half adopted by a Jamaican Guyanese mm. family, the family of my godfather. Mm. And the, my godfather's father was part of the Guyanese socialist government. He right. fled to Europe. So really well-educated family. Yeah. 
even though they're working class. And so her relationship with that family, a family in which it was expected the kids would be educated and all that sort of yeah. stuff. And so in, in a weird way, sort of my mum was politicised by that. And she yeah. didn't run away from sort of difficult questions and the difficult experiences. But similarly to David's mum, I mean, she's... I know my mum's here somewhere. Sorry, mum. Hi, mum. But, but, but she, she used to sort of... I won't say slap, because that's probably a bit harsh. <laughs> Don't want social services here. But, yeah. but no, she, she would... If we said, I can't... Yeah. She would, yeah. You know, she would give us a little tap, like, that word doesn't exist. Like she, she treated the phrase, I can't, sort of like a swear word. And similarly to David, you know, my older sister, I presume many of you know, but, yeah. you know, my next sister down is a professional stunt woman. She's mm. worked on Bond and Game of Thrones my and goodness. whatever else. And my next brother down, who's my youngest, one of my mum's children, is currently, you know, deciding which university he's going to yeah. go to. And for, you know, four children who grew up on free school meals, I don't know why I'm doing free school meals yeah. in inverted commas, just, just they really did exist. <laughs> um, that statistically is not su supposed Has to happen. happen? No. Um, and so I do think family is tremendously important, but there were loads of other factors. Mm. Good teachers, Pan-African Saturday school, community. football coaches, community, my godfather, so many other people. But yeah, definitely that, that early encouragement is massive. So there are a lot of people in the audience who have brought their children with them, um, and particularly their, their young sons. Uh, how important do you think it is to instill uh, a sense of invincibility in your children, David? Because what you've described there, had your mother not actually forced you to believe you were capable of anything, your story probably wouldn't well, be possible. I think, I think it's very, very different now. I was brought up when I was a child, there was no internet. I didn't really fully understand the stereotypes, yes. the damage that they did. Mm. Um, there were very, very few non-white people in the northeast of England when I grew up. Mm. So there wasn't this toxic version of who black people are okay, to be avoided. There weren't many. So I think it's much, much more difficult now. Um, my mother was able to create this, um, this hothouse, this familial zone yeah. that we lived in. Um, that the only people who were allowed to be friends with were people who would kind of she tolerated, yeah. um, and she could lock out the world. Now you can't do that with with kids yeah. now. Yeah. So, in some ways, those those experiences don't don't uh, don't translate to the modern age. I think it's much much more difficult. But I think as well as the fact that there's now a lot of toxic stereotypes that are more mm. pervasive and that are more in the face of young kids, I think there's also the alternative. Positive. Yeah. I mean, I was 16 when I bought Peter Fryer's book Staying Power, mm. and I didn't understand the empire, I didn't understand the forces that had led to my creation. Yes. I found it in a book, yeah. and that a book that was only then two years old, it didn't really have to be there. Yeah. No one made Peter Fryer write it, yeah. no publisher was desperately hoping, my God, can we find a socialist journalist who'll write a long, long book <laughs> about black people in Britain? <laughs> it was an accident. Peter Fryer almost, as we, I was talking to um, the publishers, he almost didn't finish it. Mm. That book happened to be there. Now. There's a lot more now. Mm. There's a lot more material. There's a lot more. There's more books. There's more understanding. There's television programs. There's things that just weren't there. So, in some ways, it balances. Well, maybe not balances it out. The stereotypes are more pervasive, but there but is there, the alternative, yeah, there's and it's more visible. Content to yeah. counter that. Carla, what do you think on that? Um, I think it's important to instill a sense of in invincibility, but also realism. And by that, I don't mean tell your children they can't be anything they want to be. Mm -hmm. I mean kind of parallel to my mum telling me I could do anything I wanted, she sort of subtly also said, but you have to work twice as hard as everyone else. Right. And so there wasn't a lion, because the, the other problem can be is, if you keep that fiction up beyond the age of 10, yeah. your children will start to wake up to the fact that the world isn't fair yeah. and resent you for it. Yeah. So it's like for the first 10 years, you've almost got to lie to your kids. 
and, and basically say, look, the world's fair, you can do whatever you want, no one's going to stand in your way. And then at 10, you've got to say, kind of like with Santa Claus, you know, I kind of lied to you a little tiny bit. Because what, what's happening for me at the moment, I've got, you know, I've, I've got a lot of friends of my age group, bit, bit slightly older than me, who are, who are quite successful. Kids go to private school, and I'm talking, you know, quite wealthy black people, who are now phoning me up like, what do I do? My teenage son, who goes to f private school, who plays the viola, is now getting harassed by the police. Wow. And he, he doesn't have the metal to cope with it. Because no. he's not a poor black kid from Tottenham who no. all his friends and uncles have been through it. They yeah. live in Richmond. Yeah. What he are they to do? He has no framework for it. He has no framework and doesn't have them. And, 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 and some of these children, they're going to private school every other week in private school. Kids are asking you, you know, to, to sell them drugs. And you're like, my dad's worth five million quid. Why the hell am I going to sell you drugs kind of thing, right? Or whatever he's worth. I'm not, you know, yeah. putting no one's business out there. Um, but... Is he, is he here? No, he's not, he's not here. Where he's not here. He? He's not here. He's not here. He's not here. The person I'm thinking of is not here. He's in the posh seats. Yeah. Exactly. On... He's in the posh seats at yeah, the top. Yeah, he's in the posh seats upstairs. Drinks are on him. But he the point I'm making, even, even for, you know, rich black children, mm. the stereotype, I mean, the gang member, the last time I got pulled over as a suspected gang member was earlier this year. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Police said to me, gang members drive cars like this. I keep telling them this story. And I was like, I'm not even the right age demographic. <laughs> Let's just start there, right? I'm, I'm 35 in December. Um, and so I think you've just got to sort of lie for 10 years, basically, yeah. and then have the conversation. And then have the... And what is the conversation? What is it, Akala? Um, just the world is... Adults are assholes. You know, okay. and, and, and the world is not fair. And if you want anything good and productive out of this world, or along lines of race or class or gender, or just as a human being, people are going to be assholes to you. And these are some of the reasons why, and these are some of the behaviors you can develop mm. to, to not fall prey to that. Like, yeah. I was in a school recently um, in South London, and, and, and they asked me, you know, what one piece of advice would I give young people? And I said to them, you know what? All of these older people that moan at you, your teachers, your parents, I wish I could tell you they were wrong. They know better than you because yeah. they're 20 years older than you. And I only now, I'm getting older, I'm at a really strange age because you're mid-30s. You can sort of see how everyone's life panned yeah. out. And all of my friends that got expelled from school, all of the boys I knew that got expelled from school growing up, dead, prison, all coming out of jail now in their 30s, oh. you know, going back to do their GCSEs, oh. all doing a job they don't want to do. And so I almost feel a much more urgent sense of saying to teenage boys, listen, this school thing that you think is a joke, this thing is saving your life. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's really, that is the talk that really actually mistakes you make at 13, 14, 15 years Can old. change the your entire life. Your life. You'll be paying yeah. for them until your 30s and 40s. Yeah. And you'll be like, damn, I wish I listened to that teacher. Yeah. Last point I'll make on it, what my football coach used to say to us, and I, at the time I just thought he was being an idiot, and it's only as I've got older that I see the wisdom. We'd be messing around as a group, and he'd say, oi, you should talk like that. <laughs> he's not going to pay your mortgage don't follow your friends because they're not yeah. going to pay your mortgage and I thought and I just waved him off if only I knew what a pearl of wisdom that yeah. was because they're not paying your mortgage of course they're not paying my mortgage <laughs> so David what does striking the empire mean to you well I think the empire the imperial story is the story that underlines and underpins so much of what's going on the empire created the systems that shape our relationships with each other, mm. and yet it's almost invisible. Yeah. And we're in a very strange moment in our history where I think a delusional version of our past and a fantasy version of our future mm. 
is being propagated. And it's only possible because we don't understand our connections to the wider world. We don't understand that imperial story. The stories that make sense of why this city looks the way it is, why this audience is made up of who it's made up, of how I came to exist, how Akala came to exist, these stories are not common knowledge. And that disconnect between our history and where we are now is so, so enormous. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the examples I use, if you think about the national drink tea, think about the words that we use to describe and you know, call tea. We call it you know, English breakfast tea, yeah. you know, Earl Grey and Builder's Tea. All of that tea's Indian yeah. or Sri Lanka. Yeah. <laughs> None of it. Is, is English breakfast. This is our national drink. But one, of the most, uh, one of the most popular brands of tea in this country is Yorkshire tea. Where in Yorkshire? Do they make tea? Do you grow tea? If there's a part of Yorkshire that can grow tea, they're not telling us about it. But these linguistic tricks, they're the way that we disconnect the fact that our history and our is global and we are the product of that global history. And what's frightening, if you take that away, then we are just kind of immigrants and interlopers and these aliens. And I think that's what has empowered and keeps making the race idea powerful in Britain mm. is that the history that just tells the story yeah. is so unknown. So is there a moment in history, particularly black British history, that you feel, or you, out of all of the history that you've studied, that you think, actually, if we all knew more about this moment in time, it would completely change the lens in which we look at everything. Is there a period that for you think, stands it's, out? It's, to me, it's multiple moments. Okay. And it's about those moments that connect what some people call the island story version of this country mm. to what we dismiss as marginal histories. When we talk about imperial history and the history of slavery, and all of these things are seen as sort of, you know, the other history, yeah. the kind of bit of colour. Mm -hmm. But the real stuff is the stuff that happens here. The things that disconnect the ways in which we've forgotten the connections. I mean, the big example for me, and the connection that really made me not become an historian, but work out there was something valuable and being wanting to be an historian, mm. which was when I began to not believe my teachers. And it's when I worked out that I'd been told an enormous lie. I'm from wow. the Northeast, as you said. In the Northeast, the big history that you're taught is the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And we were taught, we went to you know, working factories and working mills and kind of places where they had reenactors with kind of mm. rubbish moustaches walking around. <laughs> and, and I was taught everything about how those mills worked. Mm. But, you know, what you were taught at school, I was talking about spinning jennies and water frames and the factory acts and all of that sort of stuff and child labour, every stage in the process of how the raw material, which was cotton, was produced into Britain's biggest export, cotton clothing, cotton yarn, every detail of the process apart from where the cotton came from. Mm. Wow. We, we keep doing this. Yeah. We keep missing out the bits that link the histories we're comfortable with with the bits that involve non-white people. Yeah. We do it where, what, where tea comes from, where the cotton that made this country rich from, yeah. where the money that built those factories in the first place came yeah. from. Yeah. One of the investors in James Watt's steam engine, the yeah. money came from slavery. Yeah. Yeah. It's these abilities to disconnect the bits we're comfortable with, the bits where we look good, yep. to the bits that we're uncomfortable with. Yep. It's a real, it's a kind of smoke and mirrors trick. And, and we've been doing it a long time. And that's what creates the, the disconnect that we have at the moment. Yeah, because without the, you know, I mean, the great Stuart Hall said, we are here because you were there. Yeah. Yep. And if you don't know that what you were there and what you were doing when you were there, yeah. then we're just a bunch of immigrants. Exactly. 
So, Akala, in Natives, you look at the intersection of class mm -hmm. and race mm -hmm. and the parallels, particularly between the immigrant story and the white working class community. Mm -hmm. Can you go into that a bit more for me? Well, firstly, I think it's important to clarify, even though we use, I take the point and we use the language, mm. is that the people who came from the Commonwealth between 1948 and 1962 were not immigrants. Mm. So the vast majority of yes. Caribbean and Asian people yes. in particular, because we came mostly yeah. during that period, but even a lot of West Africans, yeah were literally British citizens. Yes. The 1948 yes. British Nationality Act, the first act to consecrate yes. British citizenship, made all 650 million people in the British Commonwealth oh, yeah. citizens of Britain. of Britain. They were British enough to bleed, they were British bleed in the army, they were British enough to pay tax, they were British citizens. They only discovered they weren't British when they arrived here. Um, <laughs> and lots of people don't realize that. So for, so for my, my grandmother, I know I speak for a lot of Windrush grandchildren, in her house was white Jesus and Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. Um, and, and English breakfast tea. And English breakfast tea. <laughs> but, but this was because, see, it's easy now Jamaica has such a strong national identity. It's easy to project that back into the past yeah. and say my grand's a Jamaican. Yeah. But my grand left Jamaica a British subject. Yeah. Um, and so what I point out is what the British government did, the, the, the British government's uh, very clever manipulation. And I say the government, because one of the things the state has done is very cleverly say that all the racism was just poor, ignorant, working class people. Mm. That's not to say that didn't exist, it certainly did exist. But if you look at, there's one fantastic book called Whitewashing Britain by a scholar called Kathleen Paul. And what she shows is that actually in the post-war years, the state was well aware that the British public, when surveyed about how they felt about immigrants, had just as much, if not more, hostility towards the people that were coming from Poland, Ireland, Italy, and Germany. Mm. Because the people from the Commonwealth, they saw, at least partly, as, yeah. as, as Commonwealth citizens. Yeah. Yep. And when you think about it, the worst decades in British racial history were the 70s and 80s, mm. not the 40s and 50s. Mm. So if, if, if it was all coming from ordinary people, surely it would have, the worst of it would have come just when as we arrived. arrived yeah. What the state did was a couple of parallel things. It paid for 1.5 million working-class white Brits this is in the post-war years, to go and live in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, what was then Rhodesia, yeah. and South Africa. Mm. Just to put that number into context, the total number of Caribbeans and Indians to ever come to Britain is 1.4 million. Yeah. So more than all of the Caribbeans and Indians to come to Britain put ever. Together, yeah. Yet when we talk about migration, we yeah. never talk about, and these were overwhelmingly working class people, 75% of them couldn't have even afforded the voyage if the state didn't help them. And they went to countries where, in, in, in the case of Rhodesia, for example, it was literally illegal for black people to do skilled work. Yep. Um, while they were doing this sending British people to the Commonwealth, they were also paying for people to come to Britain from Poland, Italy, Ireland, and Germany, mm -hmm. including 25,000 German and Italian literal prisoners of war. So what really happened after World War II was a population swap. Mm. And what's now happened conceptually is that the grandchildren of literal British citizens have been turned conceptually into immigrants mm. because they're brown. Yeah. And the grandchildren of literal immigrants have been turned conceptually into citizens. Because they're white. To, as part of the white working class. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very, very clever game that the state has played where you've got people whose grandparents came from Germany who think they can call me an immigrant when my maternal ancestors are the closest thing this country has to an indigenous population, been here for thousands of years. And my, <laughs> and, and, and my, my dad's family came from an island that is literally an English creation yeah. that was in a political union with England before Scotland was in a political union <laughs> with England. Um, such is the absurdity. But nonetheless, 
one of, one of the ironies of sort of racial nationalism is that white working classes people have been treated absolutely horrendously at many junctures in British history. 100%. So mm. it, it, to give probably the worst modern example, mm. right up until the 1970s, part of that migration I was talking about was the British state literally coercing people to give away their children and forcibly sending their children to Australia. About 150,000 overwhelmingly, well, in fact, completely white children were sent to Australia, New Zealand, Canada against their will. In many cases, they were literally put on plantations, whipped, sexually abused, all this kind of stuff. So my argument, obviously, when we talk about legacies of white privilege, is not that it means you get guaranteed a wonderful life. Ironically, it means that racial nationalism can sort of blind people to massive injustices and give people the idea, I have more in common with Tony Blair or David Cameron or the monarchy than I do with my Bangladeshi or Ga yeah. supposedly Bangladeshi, yeah. which is really British Bangladeshi, or Ghanaian neighbor. Yeah. And so I look at the way those two stories have overlapped, partly because my own grandfather you know, was, was a very bigoted guy. Mm. And I remember being a child, and when, when he would say, as he, you know, as he said plenty of times when my mum was growing up, well, at least I'm not a nigger, it made me think about, my granddad's poor, he's uneducated, he got tortured in battle, he had a pretty crap life in many ways. Yet in his mind, he was still somehow superior to David Ajay or to David Olasoga, yeah. despite all their accomplishments, yeah. simply because he'd been fed this sort of carrot of emotional whiteness. And even as a child, that hit me really quite profoundly that wow. my granddad could be persuaded to overlook really, really great injustices as long as he was given someone to look down on. Yeah. And of course he was not unique in that. And, and LBJ has a wonderful quote which sums that up, where yeah. he basically says, as long as you can teach the poorest, you can take from the poorest white man as long as you tell him he's better than the best black man. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's almost like a conditioning of all disadvantaged groups. Yeah. That actually, that anybody who's underneath the, the hierarchy in terms of society are then put to one side together when actually we should be working together because this is something that we're all experiencing. Well, well yes and no. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to argue that people would be one unified, you know, happy class-based group if it wasn't for the evil elites. Mm. Poor people are still assholes too, right? <laughs> and we're, we're perfectly, well, not, I'm not necessarily saying I'm, I'm poor anymore, but I'm saying that, that people are perfectly capable of being unkind to one another. What, what elites, political elites all around the world, this isn't exclusive to Britain, do, is amplify those divisions, mm. is play upon those divisions, is, is play upon if it's in India, it'll be Sikh, Muslim and Hindu, mm. or Punjabi and Gujarati. If or it's, wherever. Wherever it is in the world, it'll be some sort of fault line that po political elites can manipulate and say, those people, they're the reason. I mean, look what we saw in South Africa a few years ago, where African immigrants to South Africa, coming in many cases from governments that had helped South Africa during the apartheid years, are being massacred because the manipulation of the idea those people, those immigrants coming from somewhere else are the reason that you have the tremendous problems that you have. So it's... Which is what we see even playing out now with the Brexit Of course. Yeah. We, we think it would be... I, I don't want to Yeah, we won't that. go into anyway. that. But yeah. in part, that is the narrative. Oh, uh, a thousand yeah. percent. So, uh, to, talk, to talk more about this, this forgotten period mm. after the Second World War that Carla mentioned, I mean, at the heart of this issue about the comfort and discomfort with having invited people into your country. It's all about an inability to conceptualize Britishness as not being the same as whiteness. Yes. That's what yeah. this was really all about. I mean, yeah. those that sponsored migration that you mentioned, I mean, what, what's amazing about it is an absolute incredible delusion. The British government, and this is successive mm. governments, this is the Labour government of 45-51, the Conservative government of Winston Churchill mm. that followed. They believed that by exporting 
poor white people to those, what they used to call the white dominions, yes. Australia, New Zealand, mm -hmm. etc. Yes, that they would take their Britishness with them and that they would keep those former colonies, British. dominions, British. Yes. That their Britishness was somehow so powerful and so embedded in their racial identity that they would allow Britain to not be a country of then 45 million, but the centre of this vast empire of hundreds of million, mm. because these people's blood somehow would tie these things together. At the same time, they were imp importing people in the European Voluntary Workers Scheme, East Europeans, some of whom, as you said, were I mean, not just people who fought for the other side of the, in the, the war. Mm. In some cases, these are people who've been in the WAF and ASS who were preferred over black men who'd fought in the RAF. Yeah. The idea that they would come and they would just become British within decades, not even with generations. One report says these are people that talk about the Ukrainians out of which we could make Britons. Mm. Be and just because they're white, they don't speak English. Yeah. They're not Anglican. Yeah. They have no cultural connection to Britain. And in some cases, they had fought and killed British soldiers. Mm. But we can make Britons out of them because they're white. Anyone can become British as long as, as, long, as long as they're white. But they'll give up their Ukrainianness and their Polishness instantly, mm -hmm. and they'll come here, even within the idea that these people would, would be made British, because British is somehow so potent, was an insane idea that yeah. these British people wouldn't become Australians, no. wouldn't become Canadians, yeah. they'd stay British, and these yeah. Poles would become... <laughs> but the, you would have to, to have that level of mental gymnastics is all about, you do this, you have to convince yourself of this insanity because you can't cope with the, and I got with the idea of a guy from Jamaica who'd fought in the RAF or a guy from Ghana who'd fought in the British Army in Burma, that they could ever be properly British yeah. because of skin colour. But the idea of race, yeah, yeah, the idea of race was so powerful that the idea that Britishness could ever be non-whiteness was inimical. People just couldn't accept that. And again, this is the elites. This is, when, you, when, we, when we make programs, and I say this as a TV presenter or producer, when we've made programs about this subject, over and over again, you see the same archive. You see this poor guy from the West Indies trying to get a house, a flat in South London. And, it's, and the, the moral of that story is look at the evil white landlady, this awful, horrible white woman who won't give them a house. Well, immune from criticism in that story is Clement Attlee, the ruler, the leader of the a beloved government that mm. gave us the NHS and the welfare state, mm. and he tried to stop the Windrush landing. Yep. Mm. And if you look at the, 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 it hasn't been burnt, amazingly, the ship's list, the list, the passenger list of the, of the, mm. the Windrush, which amazingly has survived the fires in this year's scandal. Funny if you that. look at the list of the... Funny that. Uh, don't, don't give them ideas. <laughs> if you look at the list of professions, mechanics, aircraft engineers, radio operators, nurses. students, nurses. Yeah. Atlee's suggestion was they should go to Kenya and pick peanuts. What a, a powerful insult that their skills... This is a country going through the worst labour shortage since the Black Death. Yeah. We'd rather not have these people, not have their skills, not have their economic vitality yeah, yeah. because of skin colour. That's how powerful the idea of race was in the elite. And they are immune from criticism in this traditional story where it's the guy on the bus or the woman who wouldn't give a room. Which is, and, and you know why that's so powerful, David? And I'm, I promise you, I'm not going back to Brexit. I promise you. Okay. Uh, but, I understood myself. Yeah, because it was the march today, so it's in my head. Um, but because, 
But actually, when you look at that, that's the narrative again that's being played out at the moment. This is one of the things that I've really pushed back on, which is the demonizing of the white working class and labeling them as xenophobic and goodness knows what else, because actually it's that community that lived Britain's integration. When I think of when my parents came here, it was that community that welcomed us. It was that community that babysat myself and my siblings when my mother had to go to work. And we forget that actually the things that we are now proud of as a nation is because of the tolerance that came from that community. The elite didn't have to live it day well, it's to day. Re it's, it's re there's a real danger of not accepting that there was all sorts of racism. Of course. Huge, uh, and, and we, absolutely, we have to, but the way I always think about it, that piece of film of the, mm. the black guy from the West Indies walking, he, he's not still out there. No. He did actually, you know. Get a he, house. He, and <laughs> and that, that's because it wasn't universal. <laughs> The Windrush veterans used to say, there's very few of them with us, they often said that they thought Britain was divided into, into, two, into three thirds. Mm. A third of people who were irredeemably racist, who would never see you as an equal human being. A third of people who could be swayed either way. And a third of people who were convinced that racism was, um, was not, wasn't their mindset. Mm. Funnily enough, there was, there's actually a survey done immediately after World War II mm. that backs up exactly that point. That was what it found. Was it Patterson? Um, I don't know who did the Michael survey, Michael but, but it's cited in the Kathleen Paul yeah. book. Mm. Um, the point is, the state was aware of mm. that. So, for example, to, to give you a difference of how they dealt with different groups of people, there was a lot of hostility towards the post-war Polish, again, who were coming here, not, 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 yeah. not to demonise them, but they were coming here on the taxpayer's dime. The British government's response to the hostility towards the Polish was to literally take out a PR campaign on their behalf right. called What the Polish Did For You. Mm. So I, I, I think we don't need to deny that there was tremendous racism from lots of poor communities. But had the British government turned around and said, what the Asians did for you, be a long story, um, <laughs> what the Caribbean did for you, what, what Africa did, did for you, <laughs> the whole history of post-war Britain yeah. might have been quite different. different. Because this, this is a pamphlet, but I mean, yeah. the Polish family moves next door, the government puts a pamphlet through your door yeah. saying this is why they're well, here, this is what, this this is what they done. did in the yeah. war. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Imagine, as, 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 as I said, yeah. imagine if anything comparable yeah. Yeah. had been done. Completely. So I feel like with the demonization of, 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 of what we even call, even the idea of the white working class, mm. ironically, is bound up with elite ideological white yes, supremacy. Of course. Because yeah. why are the white working class separate from other people that work? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if we were arguing that indigeneity in Britain, we want to indig indigenous people in Britain have some rights. Mm. Well, I'm more of an indigenous person in Britain than someone whose grandparents, and grandparents came from Poland. Mm. If we're saying that the indigenous people of Britain have particular rights, well, the Welsh the Cornish mm. and the Highland Scots would be those people. Mm. What we're arguing is the people of Middle England, whose grandparents, millions of whom's grandparents mm. are Polish, German, mm. Italian and Irish, that whiteness should sort of subsume them. Um, so I think there needs to be sort of two conversations about a genuine xenophobia that is mm. there, but also about the way in which the elite, who is the source of that xenophobia, mm. who invented and manipulates that xenophobia, is never brought up in the conversation. Yes. And, who, and who amplify and continue to amplify yeah. it. And the point you make, I think, is really valid is that they're not the ones who have neighbours from all around the no. world. Um, and they're not the ones who've had to live that no, process. But all. yet they feel comfortable saying, oh, those it's people, them. Are, it's, yeah. it's, it's them over there. So what is, a new, what is the new narrative? How do we address this? How do we create a new way of being? And, and what do you think are the building blocks for that? David? I think the main building block is this young generation. Mm. Um, you know, when I feel optimistic, it's usually because I've, I've been talking to people 
from that generation who now thankfully have started to vote. Mm. Thank you. Make sure you do actually vote, though. Um, well, for, for, for decades now, I mean, one of the only rules of British politics was you can, you can screw the younger ranks they don't vote. Yeah. That, it's really, really important yeah. that the last election showed that that yeah. kind of, almost kind of, you know, floor of the universe yeah. has been broken. Yeah. That's critical, critically important. But, yeah. I mean, the, the report by the Royal Historical Society that came out this week, one of, one of, you know, one of the pieces of information that it shows is that a third... One in three kids in school age in England, not in Britain, are now mixed race or BME. Wow. There's a phrase that people used to use, which is, you know, demographics is destiny. Mm. That, that is going to become the country. No matter yeah. how people vote or what happens or what yeah. happens with Brexit, That's that is going in. to be coming. Yeah, because yeah. they're in the school. Those kids exist. Yeah. They're not a projection. That's going to happen. And I, I think in some ways, not only the fact that they're politicised, they're very different to my generation. Um, but the fact that they even exist, mm. governments and companies, and actually more companies mm. than governments, are beginning to realize mm -hmm. that they ain't gonna do what previous generations did. Mm. They're not gonna cope and put up with what their no. parents put up with. And so in some ways, I, I kind of always think it's not for me to say what the new, the new paradigm is because they are it yeah. and they're going to tell us. Totally. And the proliferation of social media in itself means they're not going to put up with it. They're calling you out so quickly now. Well, I find myself talking about my experiences. I you know, grew up in the 80s um, and wonderfully my younger siblings and, and their friends, they kind of can't relate to it. <laughs> and, they, and, it and it sounds kind of... Alien. Well, I, mean, I, I tell my younger siblings, when I was a kid, me and my sisters would come out of school, and if there wasn't a black person at the bus, sorry, a white person at the bus stop, you'd walk to the next one, because the buses didn't stop for black people. Oh, wow. And we just knew that, and sometimes you'd just end up walking home, or sometimes you'd be at a bus stop and the white person would get the, a bus that wasn't yours, and you'd, you know, you'd bet all your money on that white person getting your bus, and you were stuck there, and the buses just went past. And I, I say that to young black people, and they rightfully find it shocking in a way that I learned not to. Mm. Because I just got used to it. That was yeah. a lived experience. Yeah. And it's kind of only talking to young fat people like, oh, yeah, why didn't we go and smash up the bus depot? What was wrong with us? <laughs> you know, it's outrageous. <laughs> you know, talk about bus boycotts. You're like, uh, no, don't do that. <laughs> but, I mean, we, we just, we entirely accepted it. We just totally, totally accept it. In all fairness to your generation, you didn't entirely accept it. You might have accepted it on a day-to-day, -day, but I think that 80s generation, I mean... You guys burnt down half the country, yeah, if we're going to be really honest. And, 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 and at yeah, the end of that, I have an at the end of that decade, a few times. No, but it's the truth. At the end, it, it, it's a shame that it came to that. But the truth is, even when you examine what the British state said at the end of that decade, they were basically like, "Okay, these black people are crazy, and maybe we should change the way we treat them." And, and really, it was it was two issues. No, but it was two issues rolled up into one, which a lot of people forget, both with Jim Crow in America and with mm. the kind of reforms that occurred here. Mm. They were geopolitical issues. Mm. Jim Crow was brought down when it was brought down in America because of the Cold War, yeah. not just because of resistance in America. Yeah. The change in attitude towards black people in Britain that undoubtedly came in the 90s mm. came because apartheid ended. Mm. Yeah. The British government are not stupid. If they're supporting yeah. a foreign government rooted in the idea that black people are subhuman, you can hardly give the own, your black people in your own yeah. country much power yeah. and much access because... If black people were nothing else, we were overwhelmingly anti-apartheid. The two first countries in the world to put sanctions on apartheid South Africa, lest we forget, were Jamaica and Barbados. Mm. Um, and big up to Jamaica and Barbados. Um, but in terms of your question about the future, I think one of the ironies of the 
British ruling class, the kind of what I call the racial virtue signaling right-wing press, mm. kind of given us this idea that, you know, Britain is this hellhole with all these crazy brown people in it, is that which country in Europe do they think is a more successful multi-ethnic country? What, France? And, and, and is America a more successfully multi-ethnic country? So it's a really weird thing because yeah. despite all of this, I mean, this room is one example of it, but yeah. the kind of ethnically targeted violence that was very normal in the 1980s and 1970s, in the major cities in Britain, even the street gangs weren't like this even when I was a kid, yeah. right? When I was a kid, the road gangs, it was the black boys, the Turkish boys, the Irish boys. No, now, it's everyone, yeah, right? It's everyone. And, 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 and so it's really interesting that even the gangs are multi-ethnic. Yeah. And, you know, trying to integrate the no, gangs. No, <laughs> but, no, but I think in, 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 in a sense... Rather the doctors were multi-ethnic. No, but I mean, Britain has had gangs, street gangs, for half a millennia, right? Yeah. So even that, I don't, I don't want to get into the whole London, the way they're manipulating the London gang violence problem. Mm. But, but the point is, is that actually Britain ha is quite a successful multi-ethnic country. It is. It has yeah. massive problems, yeah. but actually, if you... When I, it's only, like David said, when I talk to people who grew up in the 80s yeah. and the 70s, it's only then, and I think it's quite disrespectful, when I say to a lot of the youngers, and I'm like, there's still problems, but a lot has changed, you know? Like, if you talk to my, my dad's yeah. generation, yeah. all of my dad's age group, at some point, special patrol group, which was the police group at the mm. time, took them off the street and gave them a bloody good hiding. Yeah. Me, I get stopped sometimes. Yeah. There's a big difference between getting stopped and getting and the shit beaten out yeah. of you. Neither, of our, neither are perfect, but there yeah. are significant reforms that have changed the way this For country sure. is. I go to universities now. I go to universities all the time, and they, mm. David will account for this. Mm. And ethnic minority kids, including black kids, are disproportionately mm. represented at the mm. universities. Mm. And that wasn't the case, I don't think, no. when I was a child. So Not there are lots of yeah. things to be positive about and lots of things to feel happy about. However, there is a backlash. Because yes. there are people who see... So you might have noticed this narrative in the British press of the left-behind white working class yeah. in Britain's schools. Mm. None of the middle-class journalists who write up that could give two shits about poor white kids doing good in school. And here's how you know. Poor white kids have been miles behind middle-class white people for as long as Britain's had an education yeah. system. And these people have been fine with it. Mm. Now that some kid from Ghana is doing 4% better than working-class <laughs> white kids, they're upset. And so it's that manipulation of, you know, that Kwame shouldn't be doing better than you, right? <laughs> but, 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 but Harry and Peter have been doing better than you the whole time, and that's fine. Um, and so that's one of the ways they play class against race. Um, and, and really what we should be saying is, you know, second generation Bangladeshi and Nigerian and Ghanaian kids in particular, mm. who are overwhelmingly working class, are doing very well in school, mm. shouldn't the rest of us who grew up working class try and imitate them, yeah. not be resentful of yeah. them? You, you think of someone like Stormzy, you know, six A stars at GCSE, yeah. just started a publishing company. Yeah. Think about how much influence he has on young yeah. people. Why are we not saying, isn't this amazing that yeah. this boy whose Ghanaian mum probably stood on him for half of his childhood, like, you better, if you don't get these GCSEs, <laughs> you, you, right? This is a model to no, be no, imitated. You miss it. If you don't get these GCSEs. There you go. <laughs> right? Not to be resentful of, but anyway. In fact, it's talking about little Ghanaian boys. My little nephew's here. Hi, Jaden. How are you? And he does well in school. We're on him. Get these yes, GCSEs. Fam. Get these GCSEs, fam. No anyway, get Anyway, before I open it up to questions, what are you both working on next? David? 
I'm just starting a new TV series and a new book about the empire. Oh, wonderful. BBC? Yeah, mm -hmm. and to try to tell some just new stories about the empire. Good. We because need we, some. Yeah, we've got trapped in this, this kind of ludicrous debate yeah. where some people say, well, the empire did some terrible things, but it was mainly really, really good, mm. and we should sort of uh, just uh, <laughs> tot up the totals. I'm sorry that you got wiped out, but we built some railways over here. But you're still and, here. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously, you know, this could break some eggs. And, and just to escape that, because... We were, there was, I mean, there's a poll which is now famous from a few years ago where we discovered 44% of people believe the empire was a force for good in the world. Oh, my goodness. And that's a real increase. And the people who wrote books making this case used to say, well, we're the radicals and we're the... We're, well, they're the establishment now because mm. they've won. Mm. They've convinced people that the empire was something we should feel pride in. Well, mm. I don't think we know enough about it mm. to make that judgment. Now, I know what I think, but I don't think we discuss it enough mm. to actually make a... So I just want to tell some new stories and show that there are more and more peoples and countries that we think of who were trapped in this orbit of this kind of bizarre thing that was built around this country. Brilliant. And when will that be on? Next uh, in year? 2020. 2020. Oh, 2020. Yeah. It takes me a year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm gone in 19, 2019. <laughs> yeah. I've been empty chair 2019. Yeah. <laughs> He'll be back 2020. Akana? Um, I'm actually working on a, a book as well at present. I'm, I'm working on a young adult fiction set in Elizabethan England. Mm -hmm. um, it's about Shakespeare's so-called dark lady. He never calls her the dark lady, so I'm not sure why we do. But it's about Shakespeare's black mistress. I've imagined a world around her. Mm -hmm. um, actually, the first book is about her son, um, and the second book is, is about her. And hopefully in January, I'm going to get back in the studio and actually make some music. Make some music. Because I miss it. But, um, nice. but yeah, books at the moment. So we like that. Brilliant. Well, before we go, I've just seen there's... Dawn Butler and Carney King, and let's have you, Ronald. Yeah. Oh, how lovely to have you all here. Have fun. Um, it has been, uh, <laughs> darling. Uh, it has been. <laughs> it has been so much fun. I, I just have to say, even though we are picking apart what's wrong with our country. The fact that this country has created YouTube says that we're doing something right. So thank you, thank you, thank you.